art with humans in the arsenals of anthropotechnics. Passion plays. In the light of all this, the moral historical caesura of the modern age gains emphasis. This era saw the change from individual metanoia to the mass rebuilding of the human condition from the root. Modernity, which could never be anything but radical, secularised and collectivised the practising life. Modernity, which could never be anything but radical, secularised and collectivised the practising life by breaking the long-standing asceticisms out of their spiritual contexts and dissolving them in the fluid of modern societies of training, education and work. Needless to say, this pulls the ground out from under the venerable Vita Contemplativa. The activism of the moderns uh, pushed the monastic. The activism of the moderns pushed the monastic way of life to the margins. The Reformation drove the Orient out of Christianity. Leftovers of contemplation survived in the art system, where faith was converted into amazement and prayer into admiration. Here, individuals learn to experience the effects of the great master's works on them, with varying reverence as artistic enjoyment. In the 15th century, the devotio moderna moved from the monasteries to the cities as a popularised mysticism. It expressed the idea that in future, ordinary citizens should also have the right to be crucified alongside the Lord, as a form of the ability to suffer, the imitation of the God-man on the Via Crucis, set up a sublime attractor for the laity. At the start of the artistic age, the will to passion changed camps. Now it expressed itself as admiration for artists whose performances show suffering and ability merging into each other. What is art, if not the ability form of suffering that is simultaneously the suffering form of ability? The empathetic sharing in the virtuoso suffering and ability became the foundation of modern applause. The old style of crucifixion is given less attention in a world full of artists. The post-medieval world was therefore filled with passions that did not name, or no longer knew, their origins. This perhaps explains why the aesthetic methods of modernity hid behind a triple pseudonym art, education, and finally work, only presenting themselves in an almost uncovered state in the field of sport, now modernised as training. Wearing these masks, the disciplinary imperatives of modernity establish themselves on all fronts of human self-intensification. The exercises that moulded the artist, the educated person and the working person already met the condition formulated by Nietzsche, when he addressed the supposedly revolutionary prospect of making asceticisms natural again. If the wanderer of Sils Maria called for the abandonment of Christian exercises in mortification and de-selfing, leaving open the question of whether he had understood the nature of Christian asceticism correctly, in favour of an in, in favour of an asceticism of improvement, exercises in self-domination, and development training, he was speaking neither as a caller on the mountain who had rushed ahead, nor as an eccentric prophet on the periphery, but from the mainstream of the tendency that had grown since the start of the virtuoso era in 15th century Europe. 
the event of Nietzsche, remains epochal, not because the author said completely new things about the human condition. After all, the call for an over-elevation of man, whether individual or collective, had been in the air since antiquity, and had con constituted the fluidum of Christianity for a millennium and a half. And it continued to be the first self-evident truth of all enlightened communications about the course of the world, even if the pessimistic conservative motto, man is always the same, had chronically opposed it since the French Revolution. Nietzsche's intervention remained significant because it raised the level of articulation in the process of anthropotechnic explication. And this explication, I repeat, is for us the technological and epistemological form of destiny, because the human being is now understood as the animal technologicum. Every advance in technology for application to itself contains an inescapably binding pro nobis. Inoculation with the monstrous. Nietzsche as immunologist. Nietzsche is connected to the little understood central logical event of the 19th and 20th centuries, the transformation of metaphysics into general immunology, an event that modern philosophy, theology and sociology have all failed to comprehend to this day. By revealing immunity as a system and principle, Humans are explained anew to themselves. They explicate themselves as beings that must secure themselves in the monstrous. In the world, Heidegger says, even at the price of terrible alliances. Clarifications of this type should have had an impact, should have had an immediate effect on the status of religion as the most comprehensive immunitary praxis of the symbolic kind next to the legal system. And yet it took an entire century for newer forms of cultural theory and theology to make use, make use of the new potentials for reflection. The course had already been set in German Romanticism, however. If religion, according to Schleiermacher's semi-modern semi definition, is to be understood as a, quote, sense and taste for the infinite, end quote, what this means against the backdrop of the immunological turn is nothing other than the option of a maximum symbolic immunity, a version of final insurance that stabilizes itself in the greatest possible. So, it must accordingly grow with the scale of the injuries. Schleiermacher is close enough to logical modernity to understand that this result can only be achieved through the new operate, operationalization of religious acts an inoculation with the infinite, as it were. This is precisely what Romanticism had discovered concerning consciousness. According to Novalis, Romanticizing is identical to the art of giving infinite meaning to the finite. Hence, religion was now considered the general application of the Romantic procedure. Consistently with this, the reciprocal transitions from art to religion, and vice versa, were a clear fact for Novalis and his colleagues. Now one could also show retroactively what motivated people in their first religious actions. They primarily carried out diplomatic procedures in order to form alliances against harmful powers. Thus it always had to be ensured that more energy flowed into salvation than disaster. God is greater. In particular, the greatest expected damage to life, absolutely certain and probably violent death, 
had always been opposed through the possibility of a reinsurance to an indestructible life. In order to promise such a thing, it seemed natural to ally oneself with a principle that could overcome death. This forming of alliances has appeared in countless variations in virtually all cultures. It was recorded with the Roman term religio to give the alliance between humans and God who had refuted death its definitive form. Hence Christianity's claim to be the true religion. It is the alliance that offers the highest insurance benefits. Nietzsche, who was one step ahead in the explication of these phenomena, termed the procedure of infinitization, inoculation with madness. For him, however, its purpose was not only to insure against life's risks, but also to raise the stakes. Inoculating humans with madness means making each individual dissatisfied with their status quo and provoking a reaction of the will to give trivial existence a non-trivial meaning. Since Nietzsche, it has been possible to know why functional explanations of the religious phenomenon remain incomplete. Like the practice system of art, the practice system of religion does not simply react to deficits. It solves no problems, instead manifesting surpluses that cannot be exhausted in any real task. The pious say, quote, There are not only uses, there are also blessings. End quote. Those who are less pious translate it thus, There is not only lack, there is also excess. The religioid act, par excellence, which Schleiermacher conventionally calls faith, consistently goes hand in hand, folly oblige, with a suspension of empiricism. Only someone who is able to decide against the authority of appearances, in this case the appearance of finitude, and in ficta, even the apparent primacy of the objective, can believe. Whoever cannot go mad, or become childlike, one could say, within certain boundaries, has no place among believers. The reason for this is clarified by an understanding of the function of symbolic immune systems. They separate out individuals from the continuum of prosaic data. Their basic operation aims to rehearse the most improbable as the most certain. We recall Tertullian's work, Curtum est quia impossibile. There can be no immunity to setbacks without separation from the principle of reality, and without the will to faith, there can be no confidence that the mountain standing here today could already appear elsewhere tomorrow. The European Training Camp in sketching the drama of the explication of human existence through technological and symbolic additions in a few of its central aspects, it is not my intention to tell the whole story of newer forms of anthropotechnics. Such a project would occupy a team of researchers for decades or longer. I cannot promise more in this chapter than a provisional attempt to name a few minimal logical and factual preconditions for an understanding of the questions discussed. The complex of phenomena that I would like to expose displays its discouraging complexity at first glance, and its uncanniness at second glance. It encompasses no less than the conversion of Europe into a training camp for human improvements on a multitude of fronts, whether in the school and military context, and world of workshops, or the idiosyncratic universes of newer medicine, 
the arts and the sciences. When sport, accompanied by hygienism and numerous gymnastic systems, joined the group in the mid-19th century, it augmented the familiar sphere of praxis with an autonomous discipline comprising no less than the pure representation of modern heightening behaviour in specific theatricised forms. In sport, the spirit of competitive intensification found an almost universally comprehensible, and hence globally imitated, form of expression. It not only completed the rebirth of antiquity, but also provided the most concrete illustration of the performative spirit of modernity, which is inconceivable without the despiritualization of asceticisms. Despiritualized asceticism is known as training, and corresponds to a form of reality that demands fitness as such. Fitness sans phrase of individuals. Training is methodism without religious content. Hence the predominance of the West and the evolution of world society in the 19th, 20th and early 21st centuries came not only from widely and rightly criticised imperialism. The deeper reason was that it was the people in this part of the world who, because of their head start in practice, forced all other civilizations on the planet to join in with the training systems they had introduced. The proof among the outpaced nations, only those that knew how to implant a sufficient degree of didactic stress through a modern school system managed to leap forwards. This succeeded most where, as in Japan and China, an elaborated system of feudal conditionings facilitated the transition to modern disciplines. Meanwhile, the tiger states of practice have caught up, and while the modernism of the West haughtily turns up its nose at imitation and mimesis, new competitors all over the world have built their success on the oldest learning principle. Westerners will probably only understand how much an old great power of practice like China owes to this principle when the Confucian institutes of the new global power have penetrated the furthest corners of the earth. The aforementioned groups of disciplines form a constellation that can only be understood within the framework of a general history of systemic intensifications. As noted above, this shares some elements with Foucault's studies on the history of ordering and disciplinary systems, but integrates them into a broader horizon. One can only do justice to the modern age as a whole if one relates it to a mental, moral and technological change that has never been adequately portrayed. The existence of the moderns shows aspects of a global fitness exercise, in which what I have termed the ethical distinction, the intense call to elevate life, heard by very few in pre-modern times, has been transformed into a universally addressed and multifariously answered meta-noetic imperative. Its transmitters were primarily the modern state and the corresponding school, at first supported genetically by the clergy of all confessions. In addition, other agencies, not least the writers of the Enlightenment, appropriated fragments of the mandate to call for a change in life. Culture is a monastic rule. For the moderns, this meant constantly facing the task of integrating themselves into an order of achievement that imposed its rules on them, with the notable detail that far from entering the order of their own volition, they were born into it. Whether they liked it or not, their existence was embedded in ubiquitous disciplinary milieus from the outset, with no breakaway movements, 
romanticisms of laziness or great refusals to oppose it. As if to prove that it was serious about its imperative of achievement, the order of achievement that donned the mantle of civil society also has something resembling confirmations for the élan of the young. Certificates, examinations, doctorates, and bonuses. As soon as the absolute imperative takes broader effect, the age of propaganda begins. It is not only the Christian faith that strove for universal dissemination and penetration, the goal which the infamous Congregatio de Propaganda Fide, set up by the Counter-Reformation Pope Gregory XV in 1622, set itself. It was rather the imperative of human getting into shape in general that put training pressure on European populations, guided by their clerical and worldly mentors. And the antagonism between confessions had always included a compulsion to heighten the tonicity of faith. Belonging to a religious camp implies, particularly in times of war, an increased level of coercion to religion polemical being in form. Even the Ignatian exercises constituted only one of many varieties of early modern fitness imperative in the religious field. The widespread Jesuit schools, famous both for their severity and for their teaching success, were the most tangible document of corresponding advances on the pedagogical front. As soon as affecting larger populations through morally and artistically demanding vertical tensions is put on the cultural agenda, one must resort to unaccustomed methods in order to popularise asceticisms. This entails abandoning the elitist beginnings of asceticism. Thus the exercises of the moderns broke open the monasteries, cathedral schools and medieval armories to create new practice centres. In time, the renovated training units transformed society as a whole into a training association affected by the stress of increase. What had once largely been the province of escapists now shifted to the centre of the system. Hermitages were now elegant places of retreat, or moody palaces on the banks of cold rivers. But even those who could afford such higher varieties of relaxation could not escape the dictate of fitness. One could take the great departures to pedagogical utopias in the 17th century as indicating the transitional saddle period of the new universalism of achievement. Indeed, even the prompters of the current information society who trumpet the motto of lifelong learning are still performing an unconscious continuation of Baroque mobilizations. To understand why the modern age transpired as an era of technology and simultaneously anthropological self-explanation, one must note the fact that the main socio-historical or rather lifestyle historical event of this epoch, was the transformation of quote-unquote societies into practicing associations, stress-driven mobilization groups, and integral training camps spanning all their differentiated subsystems. Here, constantly renewed technologies are configured with humans who constantly have to learn anew about themselves. These associations are of an interdisciplinary constitution, as the diverse practice systems are intertwined via both close and loose connections. Like the different weapons in a military association, or strategic roles within a team, 
what we call labor-divided society is de facto the practice-divided competency field of a modern achievement collective entering the stress field of history. Writing history turns into reporting on competing communities of fate under shared stress. One should never overlook, however, how much the national formats of the new European performance culture have been foiled by the internationalism, initially taken for granted, of the arts, literatures, sciences, military drill procedures, and more recently into sporting athleticisms. Speaking of the modern age, then, means addressing the cultural production of an all-pervading, bracing climate of performance increase and ability development a climate that had established itself in the absolutist states long before the social Darwinist proclamation of competition as the supposed law of natural history. It is characterised by a constant externalisation of practice goals and the transformation of self-collection into fitness. The current key term for these externalised increases in outward application is enhancement, a word that expresses the shift of emphasis from the previous practicing ascetic self-intensification and its bourgeois translation into education to the chemical, biotechnical and surgical heightening of individual performance profiles. The enhancement fever of today articulates the dream, or the illusion, of the, a modernization that does not stop at formerly internal zones in human self-relationships. From Arnold Galen's perspective, the diagnosis of this trend would be that the principle of relief has penetrated to the core areas of ethical behaviour. By relieving oneself of the ego, one supports the suggestion that it is possible and desirable for individuals to access their own lives, like an external datum, without having to bother shaping their existence themselves through practice. A glance at the most recent effects of the enhancement industry operating worldwide, with its departments of plastic surgery, fitness management, wellness service and systemic doping, retroactively suggests that the exercises of the moderns had possibly only ever aimed for the perfect externalisation of concern for oneself, and the avoidance of the subject in the definition of its fitness status. Where the enhancement idea is dominant, the raising of the performance level is used like a service, where the effort made by the individual is restricted to purchasing the most up-to-date procedures. The classical practice subject, which sought to adapt to the law of the cosmos and protracted asceticisms, or made space for God within itself through de-selfing, an aesthetic of existence, like the one Foucault believed he had discovered, never existed in antiquity, however, and the Middle Ages could never have invented such a thing is replaced by the lifestyle subject, which does not want to forego the conventional attributes for representing existential autonomy. I'll read that sentence again without the parenthesis and hope it makes sense. The classical practice subject, which sought to adapt the law of the cosmos in protracted asceticisms, or made space for God within itself through de-selfing, is replaced by the lifestyle subject, which does not want to forego the conventional attributes for representing existential autonomy. Second history of art, the executioner as virtuoso. 
In the following I shall present elements of a second history of art that tells of applied art. It deals with the art that takes humans themselves as its material. In Trotsky's words by seizing on the human being as a physical and psychic semi-finished product. I shall leave aside the most obvious phenomena of art with humans, especially the well-known practices of tattooing and the manifold varieties of body painting, cosmetics and decorative deformation. Nor will I discuss the fantastic world of status indicating headwear, such as crowns, hats and helmets, although these would be fruitful for the observation of put-on art with humans. As far as the reservoir of clothing, fashions, jewellery and accessories is concerned, I shall merely refer to the corresponding literature. This literature on a passing note shows that the history of vestimentary modernisation can only be told as a history of people and their wardrobes. Instead, I shall begin at the macabre extreme of a craft exercised on human beings. The profession of executioner. It should be beyond doubt that Michel Foucault had a gruesome pen had the gruesome penal cult rituals of the early modern ages in mind when he presented his equally famous and problematic definition of biopolitics in older and newer times, stating that biopower in classical times expressed itself in the approach let live and make die, while modernity supposedly prefers to make live and let die. It is no coincidence that the author of Discipline and Punish, The Birth of the Prison, opens his discipline historical investigation with a fascinated and fascinating account of the most opulent execution spectacle ever presented to an 18th century audience. The torture, quartering and burning of the would-be royal assassin Robert Francois Damiens in 1757 before the royal household on the Place de Grève in Paris. Foucault's description brings back memories of the era of the Châtiment spectacle, which ended with the Ancien Régime, when punishment was staged as the triumph of the law over wrongdoing, and the exclusion of delinquents from moral society. A further reason to date the society of the spectacle back to classical, or perhaps medieval, even archaic statehood. Among the French Restoration authors, none perceived more clearly that the art de Pernilla, later uncovered again by Foucault, indeed had an artistic character in its own right, than Joseph de Maistre, author of those notorious pages in Soirées de Saint-Petersburg, 1821, devoted to that shunned pillar of social order, the executioner. Here he reminds the reader, targeting the spirit of the bourgeois age with Catholic royalist defiance of the forgotten and frowned-upon punishment, uh, punitive art of pre-revolutionary times. Quote, A dismal signal is given. An abject minister of justice knocks on his door to warn him that he is needed. He sets out. He arrives at a public square packed with a pressing and panting crowd. He has thrown a poisoner, a parricide, a blasphemer. He seizes him, stretches him out, ties him to a horizontal cross and raises his arms. Then there is a horrible silence. There is no sound but the crack of bones breaking under the crossbar 
and the howls of the victim. He unties him and carries him to a wheel. The broken limbs are bound to the spokes. The head hangs down. The hair stands on end, and the mouth, gaping like a furnace, occasionally emits a few bloody words begging for death. He has finished. His heart is pounding, but it is with joy. He congratulates himself. He says in his heart, No one can break men on the wheel better than I. End quote. De Maistre's executioner appears as a master of his craft, who anticipates the romantic artist. Like the latter, he must forego daily conviviality, as his art alienates him from human relationships. Like the artist, he develops a specific detachment, Flaubert's impassibility, that enables him to carry out his profession matter-of-factly. And as with the artist, his self-approval precedes the judgment of the masses. Provided he has a successful work to attribute to his savoir-faire, his loneliness goes deeper than that of the artist, as it is not even broken by collegial conversation. He does not receive any guests who could give him advice on how to perfect his craft. There is no chance of a visit from an earnest traveller with greater knowledge, one who humbly leaves us with another craftsman's trick. The executioner is a virtuoso of an art applied to humans whose focus is on the exhibition of a body twisted in agony. Anthropotechnics is involved insofar as the delinquent appears as starting material for artful manipulations, a semi-finished product that is transformed into a fatal end product within a few hours. The beginning of biopolitics. Even the classical state had already made humans live. At first glance, it might appear that there is no more convincing confirmation of Foucault's first version of the biopower formula, let live and make die, than the performance of the theatre of terror and the penal rituals of the early modern age. In reality, the early modern state was precisely not content to quote-unquote let its subjects quote-unquote live. And on the contrary, it is clear from even the most fleeting glance at the demographic policy of the 16th and 17th centuries that in its incipient absolutist phase, the state was equally determined to make its subjects live to a degree that makes the quote-unquote biopolitics of the 19th and 20th centuries which supposedly, quote, makes live and lets die, end quote, seem like a hopeless postlude. Helpless, especially in the fact of the face of the main demographic trend in 20th century Europe, the abrupt decrease in reproduction, stemming from the return of contraceptive art in combination with the new rise of private procreative considerations. In truth, the state of the pre-classical and classical age was primarily a life-making state, for the equally simple and fatal reason that as a mercantile state, a tax state, an infrastructure state, and a state of standing armies, it strove for a form of sovereignty that presumed the discovery of the demographic mass law. That power, in its more recent inflection, primarily means dominion over the greatest possible number of subjects, with the subject already conceived consistently within the expanding property economy as a non-enslaved worker, 
an epicenter of value creation, and a taxable self-interest headquarters. As the modern state knows, it shares its fateful alliance with the centre. Macro-egotism cannot thrive without blossoming micro-egotisms. Under such premises, a suitably modern exercise of power involves the state, supported by its providential accomplice, the church as guardian of family values, gaining control over the source of populousness. It intervenes in the generative behaviour of its subjects via suitable measures, specifically by terrorising the bearers of contraceptive knowledge, namely midwives, to ensure the highest possible number of reproductively able people. The measure of all measures in this field is the state and church-sanctioned maximisation of human production. Even Adam Smith, in his main work of 1776, speaks calmly of the production of men, which is governed by the demand for men. It was set in motion by the systemic destruction of the informal balance between the manifest patriarchy and the latent matriarchy, and thus by the annulment of the historic compromise between the sexes that, under the mantle of the church's life protection ethics, had become established in Europe since late antiquity and remained in force until the late Middle Ages. Hence the unprecedented offensive to enslave women in the, to the imperative of reproduction, and the systematic destruction of knowledge about birth control, which went down in history under the misleading name of quote-unquote witch hunts. As Gunnar Heinzon showed decades ago in cooperation with Otto Steger and Rolf Knieper, the misogynistic excesses of the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe, with their numerous live burnings of women, should not be understood as a regression of modern society into medieval barbarism, nor as an epidemic sexual neurosis, as psychoanalytical commentaries usually claim. They were rather the hallmark of early modernity itself, which followed its main impulse in accordance with the new demographic imperative, to ensure an unlimited availability of subject material. With its terror against midwife witches, the early nation-state handed its business card to society as the latter modernised itself. The question of whether one can genuinely ascribe a highly developed expertise to the wise woman of that time in matters of contraception will perhaps remain open. Supposedly, however, over a hundred procedures for the prevention of unwanted offspring were known before the repression began, procedures whose effectiveness may in some cases be open to doubt. But apart from this, the consequences of quote-unquote witch oppression were soon plain to see, and represent statistically. During a long period of rigid demographic policies, the modern state, in alliance with the Christian clergy, refused to tolerate the conventional controlling function of wives over the source of humans at all, let alone respect it. The guided sensibility of early humanity the guided sensibility of early modernity declared infanticide the exemplary crime against humanity and a direct attack on the national interest. Here one finds a rare case of total congruence between family and state morality. It is anything but coincidental, then, that the greatest modern state theorist after Machiavelli, the jurist Jean Baudin, 1530-96, a former Carmelite monk, 
distinguished himself as one of the most rabid witch hunters of all time. The writer of the epochal Six Livres de la Republique, 1576, was at one time the author of the most brutal witch hunting tracts of all time, published in Paris in 1580 under the title De la Demonomanie des Sorcières. I apologise. What he wanted to achieve in his dual function as a founder of the modern theory of sovereignty and master thinker of the Inquisition against reproductively able but self-willed women is plain to see. The crux of the matter had already been revealed a century earlier by the authors of Malleus Maleficarum, alias the Hammer of the Witches. Quote, no one does more harm to the Catholic faith than midwives, end quote. From now on, Catholic faith implied an unconditional subjugation of married persons to the consequences of marital intercourse, regardless of whether they were in a position to ensure a sufficient inheritance, and thus a productive future for their offspring. Without consideration, even for the question of whether one can expect workers with no property of their own to bring up children at all. The policy of, quote, capital expansion through population increase, end quote, calmly passed over objections of this kind. In truth, the population explosion of the modern age was triggered in part by the extensive incorporation of the propertyless workers, the subsequently much-discussed and usually wrongly declared quote-unquote proletariat into the family, and the procreative praxis of late aristocratic bourgeois society. In matters of procreation, the attitude of most Reformation theologians was even more Catholic than that of the papacy. Martin Luther, who produced half a dozen children with Katharina von Border, taught, intoxicated by the élan of his own faith, that Christian men should rest assured that if they increased the numbers of the faithful, God would not withhold the material means to nurture them as long as they were sufficiently diligent. Heinzon, and his colleagues incisively summed up the maxim behind such thinking. Quote, Generalization of individual irresponsibility in the form of responsibility to God. End quote. One should note here that the concept of responsibility is significant neither in theology nor in classical modern philosophy. It has only moved to the centre of ethical reflection in the course of the 20th century when the explosively grown problem of actions and their unintended consequences gained a large part of the moral attention. It is undeniable, however, that to this day, Christian sexual ethics, in its official Catholic form, shows a resolute blindness to consequences that would like to be mistaken for trust in God. Because of their commitment to the protection of unborn and born life, an honourable thing in itself, Modern age churches of all confessions acted as de facto, de facto accessories to the most cynical biopolitical operation of all time. Human overproduction and proletarianization. In its boundless longing for subjects, the new Leviathan decreed the most massive deregulation ever seen in the history of human reproductions. Accepting the demographic explosions during the 20th century in the Islamic sphere and various zones of what was once called the Third World. Within a few generations, thanks to consistent witch policies from both above and below in the leading European nations, 
which moreover were still looking back fearfully on the depopulation catastrophe in the 13th century and the periodically returning plagues. Birth rates first increased steadily, then exploded. Within barely more than a quarter of a century, the effects of absolutist biopolitics accumulated, through temporarily restrict, though temporarily restricted by the consequences of the Thirty Year War, into a human tsunami whose crest broke in the 19th century. One of the conditions not only for the growth of a proletariat damned to frustration, a class of propertyless workers who had to sell their services on markets outside of family businesses, but also for a disproportionate human exportation, mistakenly termed imperialism by Marxists, that supplied the personnel to populate three continents with Europeans, South America, North America and Australia, as well as a partial occupation of the remaining continents. The same demographic tidal wave flooded European societies with countless unusable, unruly and unhappy people, absorbable neither by the labour market nor by regiments, let alone the navy or overseas destinations. It was they who, from the 17th century on, brought about the first precursors of the welfare state, the etat providence, and provoked intervention. It was their fates that Foucault stumbled upon in his studies on the history of the modern disciplinary system. It is no insult to him if one notes that the explanatory value of his investigations is lessened by their insufficient consideration for the demographic dimension of his topic. A disconcerting observation on a scholar whose present renown is based almost entirely on his supposed discovery of biopower mechanisms. What is demographic policy? but the application of biopolitics. It is perhaps time to point out calmly that Foucault, especially at the start of his disciplinological research, fell prey to an enormous optical illusion when he sought to attribute the state's capture of irretrievable surplus humans, whose existence is often documented by no more than a note in the records of the absolutist administrations, to the effects of a fundamentally repressive state-based disciplinary power. In reality, the measures taken by the early modern state on the poverty political front can only be grasped if recognised as a more or less mechanical defence against its own excessive successes in the field of human production. What seems like a quintessential manifestation of disciplinary power, from the perspective of the genealogy of the prison, was, from a state-functional perspective, already a form of the caring power that would constitute the modern welfare state. Long before the 19th century raised any capitalism-specific social question. In fact, the, measure, the measures to discipline the poor in the classical period already contained the concession to the central principle of anthropological enlightenment. It is not nutrition that makes humans, but rather incorporation into the symbolic order. Quote-unquote, socialization in the jargon of the 20th century. What is socialization, however, but one of the masks worn by the practicing life in an age bewitched by work and domination? The culture pathological consequences of deregulated human production in Europe between the 16th and 19th centuries were unforeseeably far-reaching. They culminated in a modernization of cruelty that surpassed even the purposeful brutalization training of antiquity. 
Even here, however, one should not confuse side effects with intentions. Gunnar Heinzon and his colleagues point out the early modern age's inability to fine-tune itself, which guaranteed that it would fall prey to its lack of regulation sooner or later. It is generally doubtful in any case whether demographic policy can already be viewed as a concise form of modern anthropotechnics, as it, is quite, as it quite obviously lacks the technical aspect, the mastering of the procedure that brings about the desired result in discrete, explicit and controlled steps. There is no doubt that it turns human beings into raw material for further processing, political and otherwise. It is equally evident that it is committed to the experimental style of modern, great politics already identified by Nietzsche. The dynamism and futurism of the new civilizatory model are inconceivable without a significant element of chance. From this perspective, the absolutist style of demographic policy was a form of project-making on a grand scale, something halfway between technique and gamble that was typical of its time. The birth of social policy from the problem of human surplus. In our context, all that matters is that the populationist policies of the early modern state triggered the imp impetuous development of numerous concrete forms of anthropotechnics, whether these manifested themselves on the education political, pedagogical, military, police, or welfare state fronts. The demographic policy based on unconditional growth led to the typical modern vicious circle in which the incessant, soon apparently fateful overproduction of humans caused a massive overtaxing of upbringing potential in families, and hence a higher risk of epidemic child neglect. The response to this disastrous situation was, for understandable reasons, usually to appeal to the modern school system, not only so that it would provide the modern community with the necessary numbers of achievers, but also in the hope that the vast group of hopeless and superfluous people might form something resembling useful, or at least harmless, members of society after all, a task at which the educators of the early modern state were doomed to fail. When the toughening disciplines of school and the integrative effects of professional life fail, a second rescue system is required to catch the surplus individuals. It is in this regime of administrative severities that the Foucauldian phenomena, the disciplines of custody, sedation and correction in the classical state, developed. What we call social policy today is initially nothing but the modern state continually tracing its self-created self vicious circle. Quote-unquote, capitalism only contributed to it after the Industrial Revolution of the late 18th century by beginning the never-ending crusade to lower the cost of the labour factor. This all-too-successful campaign is still giving the postmodern therapy and redistribution state a chronic headache, as it does not know what to make of the confusing simultaneity of high unemployment and low birth rates. De facto, this points to the excessive successes of the economic system in its search for ways to reduce labour costs a success that inevitably leads to the mass dismissal of workers, yet can only be attained at the expense of the social system. But even the absolutist state, which made live 
too much from the start by producing substantially more humans through its control over sexual parameters than it, or rather the families, schools and factories, could equip with humanising qualifications and chances of economic employment, was damned to erect its ever higher towering pyramids of polytechnical virtuosity over a substrate of impoverished and over-numerous humans. For them, compulsive disciplining was the only way to achieve some form of completion, however pitiful. Looking only at these phenomena, however, is not enough to understand the disciplinological adventure of the modern age as a whole, neither in its artistic and artisanal dimensions, nor in its scholarly, epistemological and engineering aspects, to say nothing of the neo-athletic and anthropopolitical departures of the late 19th and complete 20th century. Educational policy under the absolute imperative. Modern pedagogy reacted to the new order situation in its own way. It took advantage of the state's chronic need by making itself indispensable to the modern body politic for centuries. It sharp-wittedly rose to become the discipline of all disciplines. It single-mindedly combined the crude education-political imperative supplying a modern state with usable human beings, with a modern form of the absolute imperative, quote, instead of changing your life later on, you should let us change you from the start, end quote. At the start of their offensive, educators were committed almost without exception to this rule, as they almost all came from church traditions, or, in our translation, from the institutionalized practice forms of ethical difference. They knew from venerable sources and early morning introspections that man is the being which needs to be brushed the wrong way. The era in which Rousseau and the anti-authoritarians could spread their confusion had not yet dawned. It had not occurred to anybody that one need only let children follow their own inclinations in all matters for free citizens to emerge. Even the most terrible fouetteurs d'enfance, to use the epithet Rabelais coined for Pierre Tempat, master of the Parisian College du Montagu, where Ignatius of Loyola studied, who became legendary for his brutality towards students, was absolutely convinced that he was merely doing what was necessary, as a Christian and schoolmaster, to turn little monsters into adults with children, uh, adults with character. In the certainty that idleness is the beginning of all not all vice, the pious educators of that time did everything in their power to ensure that the devil had no chance of finding a pupil's mind unoccupied. Emendatio Mundi Perhaps this was the only way for the absolutely unexpectable to occur. From the modern state's initiation of human production emerged, through the intervention of the educators, the most powerful idea of the last 500 years, the notion of world improvement appeared on the scene when the Baroque school accepted the task of warding off the human catastrophe triggered by the early modern state through its policy of unfettered human production. In this situation, improving the world meant improving humans en masse. As this was no longer practicable at the self-improve... As this was no longer practicable as the self-improvement of an ascetic minority 
a required improvement of the many through educational institutions. Hence, the pedagogues of early modernity, for the first time, applied the metanoetic imperative directly to children. Only then did the meaning of the thesis that all education is conversion truly become clear. The later totalitarian systems would be heir to the invasive schools, reclaiming the prerogative of completely capturing the young. With the support of the human production state, which was demographically competent, and hence strong, but pedagogically incompetent, and hence in difficulties, educators on the eve of the Enlightenment realised that they could only perform their duty successfully on one condition. They would have to reach for the whole human being in each student. They already saw the child as the future citizen. They consequently decided to preempt metanoia, the ethical revolution in midlife, by planting the seed of change at the beginning. Because of this disposition, the early modern school became the cell of ambition for the world that was to be changed, indeed the incubator for all later revolutions. It not only wanted to prepare for the better world while still in the worse, it sought to pull the world as a whole onto the better side through the production of graduates who were too good for the world as it was. School had to become the place where the adaptation of humans to deficient reality was thwarted. A second overproduction was to compensate for the damage caused by the first. Implanting the change of life and the beginnings of each life demanded, to begin with, no less than the transference of monastic discipline to the school setting. This was the minimum price for the project of modernity. From the start, its goal was nothing but the correction of the erroneous world text, the emendatio mundi. It consisted in the replacement of the current depraved wording with a lost original version that could only be rendered legible once more by theologians, philosophers, and now also educators. This idea, which could only have occurred to the typesetters and printers, the correctors and publishers of the Gutenberg era and their accomplices, the schoolmasters and educators of adults who would call themselves members of the Enlightenment soon afterwards, could be applied most plausibly to the souls of children in the burgeoning age of print. School transpired early on as the moral distillation flask of modern society, being the place where the meta-noetic appeal to retreat from the world was to be taken up by a secular institution and turned towards profane ends. Here it was always important to maintain the semblance of subordination to the state mission, no publicly funded school in the time between Erasmus and Hartmut von Hentig has ever stated openly that its aim was the production of socially unusable characters, let alone modern hermits. Nonetheless, it is fair to say that every educator of quality had thoughts about the true goals of their profession that did not exactly coincide with the expectations of statehood. This, then, proved to be the highest form of art with humans in the age of Christian humanism and its school projections. The availability of procedures for incorporating imperatives of humanization into education, and imprinting the watermarks of the ideal indelibly upon the souls of the youngest. The premises for this change lie in the dissonant alliance between state and school. The mercantilist state of the early modern age identified the movements of monastic flight from the world, which were still massive, as an unwelcome tendency, 
almost a subversive evasion of potential workers from the spreading dictate of universal usefulness. It believed it was acting circumspectly and in its own interests by giving educators the power to take the young by the hand early on and thus commit them to a curriculum of general usability from their first steps on. Its miscalculation would become evident in subsequent centuries. Whoever relies on pedagogues to produce citizens should be prepared for unexpected side effects. School interest versus national interest. The trick of pedagogical reason articulated itself in the fact that while the modern school trained its pupils nominally with a view to the state and quote-unquote society, it secretly, sometimes even manifestly, bypassed the state and quote-unquote society. This error was crystallised in the resonant German word Bildung. The special status of quote-unquote culture in the modern construction of reality cannot be understood without the organised deviation of education from its external purpose. One could already see a hint of the incipient differentiation of subsystems. The trivialising sense behind the talk of differentiation, admittedly, would be clearer here than elsewhere. Just as modern demographic policy fails at fine-tuning its demographic instruments, state-controlled pedagogy fails at fine-tuning its educational measures. Because school has a logic of its own, modern culture was flooded with an enormous surplus of dead-end idealisms, Personalism, humanism, utopianism, and moralism being the official varieties. This excess provoked a series of culture pathological reactions from escapism and inner retreat to romanticism, revoltism, and immoralism. The character mask of the cynic conquered the late aristocratic and bourgeois stage from the 18th century on. The Mozart, de Ponte, or operas, would be quite incomplete without the figure of the hard-boiled philosopher who, wrapped in his foul-smelling donkey hide, always expects the worst of humans. At the same time, the modern novel unfolded a veritable phenomenology of private reason turned bad. Hegel's philosophy, at its didactic core, is nothing other than a machine for processing frustrated idealism. For what he calls education is essentially disappointment management. It refers not to the decented wandering of bourgeois curiosity between this and that thing, as today's equation of culture with leisure implies. Bildung demands the hard later conditioning of the flaring up idealistic subject, which must abandon the illusion that the world owes it any adjustment to its morally exaggerated expectations. Needless to say, the sensible Protestant Hegel was defeated across the board in his struggle with modern protest culture. No one who wanted to write a reasoned history of modern pedagogy could avoid examining the deepest systemic rupture within the semantics of the modern age, the divergence of school interest and national interest. This pseudo-symbiosis of school and state holds some of the most baffling dysfunctionalities of modern culture. It causes frictions whose dissonant potential goes beyond the old symbiotic dualism of church and state. 
a retelling of this dangerous liaison would not only have to show how, to this day, countless graduates of the modern school systematically dream in directions unrelated to the conditions of the working world. It would also have to explain the state's chronic attempts to defeat the single-mindedness of the pedagogical practice for pragmatic and utilitarian reasons. Such attempts would provide the running thread leading to a history of school as a history of school reforms, always from the ideal school to the real one, of course. University reforms in Germany during the 20th century, whether those of 1933 or those of the late 1960s, to name only the two most symptomatic caesuras, form a coherent picture if one sees in them the undisguised will of the state to reconquer the commanding heights of cognitive human production in the service of the working world and power politics. Had Wilhelm II not already claimed, in front of German secondary school teachers, that what was needed at German schools were not new Greeks, but young German men? Naturally, the education planners could only succeed in their neo-realistic plan if they took suitable steps to eliminate the humanism still blooming in the faculties, especially the humanities, assuming the reorganised departments did not initiate the necessary adjustments of their own accord. For decades, preemptive dismay has been the zeitgeist itself. All the world's a school. Whoever wants to teach becomes a member of the modern world's most powerful organisation, Teachers Without Borders. If world time and school time converge in future, it is due to their actions. No author of the burgeoning era of teachers formulated with more elan, more comprehensively or more radically how pervasive the new pedagogy had become than John Amos Comenius. His works give the impression that he wanted to correct Shakespeare's statement, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players, replacing it with the counter-thesis that all the world is a school and all humans merely pupils. We are inhabitants of a creation in which everything revolves around instruction. Quote, 2. That it is right to call the world a school is shown first of all by the matter itself. For what is a school? It is generally defined as a company of persons who teach and learn what is useful. If this is true, then the world is a school, since it is entirely made up of an order of teachers, learners, and disciplines. 3. For everything that exists in the world, teaches or learns, or it does both alternately. 5. Therefore, nothing is filled with disciplines, i.e. with various tools for admonishing, advising, and driving on. Therefore, it is not wrong to call the world a house of discipline. End quote. For human beings, the created world is a prelude to eternity. It offers a preparatory course that we must attend before we are admitted to the heavenly academy. Comenius has no doubts that the material that has been coveted, that Comenius has no doubts that the material that has to be covered during the stay in the house of discipline, the world pupil must work through three books to acquire the necessary wealth of knowledge. Quote, the first and greatest book of God is the visible world, inscribed and illustrated with as many characters as there are creatures of God to be seen in it. The second book is man himself, made in the likeness of God. 
but God has given into man's hands a third book, the Holy Scripture, end quote. If one takes into account the depraved nature of man, it is hardly surprising that mortals have so far, for the most part, made no proper use of the aids given to them. They rejected the universal books granted to them, thanks to the free availability of divine teaching tools. They willfully insisted on imaginary special knowledge, causing them to sink into darkness and eternal quarrelling. As a result, there is no redemption in the world, only a civil war between the pseudo-knowledgeable and the ignorant. At the time he wrote these statements, Comenius was not only looking back on the Thirty Years' War, which he had experienced in its entirety, he could also see the beginnings of a never-ending Cold War that modern experts in international law whitewash as the quote-unquote European state system, established in the Peace of Westphalia, and rationalised by the Jus Publicum Europeum. Pre-Enlightenment, the way of light. For Comenius, the enthusiastic mastermind of the Bohemian Brethren, the way to heal the world's sickness was not to be found at the peace conferences of potentates. It could only be gleaned from the eternal philosophy and from revelation. The path of salvation for the decrepit world could only be the way of light. Thus the title of Comenius's Chiliastic Manifesto, of 1668, whose most significant parts had been written in London over 20 years earlier. In this epochal treatise, he stirred up conventional neoplatonic thought figures, such as the doctrine of the threefold action of the primal light, comprising inner stasis, emanation through creation, and the satisfying return to the source in the spirit of a pedagogical apocalypticism. Here, the main motifs of the later Enlightenment insofar as it is based on a barely disguised totalitarianism of the school, are plain to see in their original Christian millenarian form. In our context, it is instructive to observe how, for the great schoolman, the way of light prefigures the way of school, while the way of school points to the perfection of the book. Thus he answers the question, how can the greatest light of understanding be kindled for the world, with the information that one must unify the three sources of light, self-communicating nature, the inborn ideas of the human soul, and the holy scripture, in a single over-bright flame. Through its reflected rays, this universal light of the mind can communicate itself step by step to all peoples of the world, because it already shines in the new books, and will shine even brighter in the future once improved books are available. The absolutely necessary books can be translated into the common languages. Thanks to the timely inventions of the letterpress and deep-sea navigation, the spreading of that strongest and most radiant light which overcomes all resistance from darkness is now only a matter of time. The omens of future pan-harmony are shining on the horizon of the present. Among these is the widespread human longing for a better world. Comenius would not have been a metaphysicist in the classical tr tradition, if he had not taken the presence of that longing as a sign that it could be fulfilled. God would not have implanted this yearning for good in us if he had not already ensured its attainability. Analogously, Ernst Bloch, the last great naive thinker of world improvement, saw hope itself as an agent for realising the hoped for. 
The top form of modern age art with humans is evident in the over-enthusiastic project of turning every student into a pupil of pansophy. This term, common amongst encyclopedic scholars since the 16th century, is probably best translated as the art of omniscience. In our century, though, probably since the days of Diderot and his colleagues, it has been forgotten that the world knowledge of the modern age has begun its reproduction cycles under the catchword of omniscience, a word whose history of decline indicates the oft-cited clarification of enlightenment, abklärung der Aufklärung, the syllabus of the student of omniscience, and other students are for the moment not worth mentioning, is based on the aforementioned premises. Whoever wishes to learn must learn everything, in keeping with the three keys to totality, or books, which the Creator, according to Comenius's doctrine of source, provided for mankind. Hence every single pupil must transform into an artwork of omniscience, printed in the typographic workshops of the new pan-disciplines. Comenius, one of the grand masters of pansophy, alongside Athanasius, Kircher and Leibniz, Leibniz, never tired of constantly inventing new subdivisions and variations to augment the mother discipline. Panpaideia, universal education. Panergia, universal technique. Panglotia, doctrine of universal language. Panorthosia, doctrine of universal reform. Panuthesia, universal warning. Panergasia, universal appeal. And Panaugia, universal light. The definition of school in Comenius's Orbis Sensualium Pictos, the visible world, the first school book of the modern age, published in Nuremberg in 1658, as a workshop in which young minds are formed in accordance with virtue, is therefore incomplete. Institutions of this kind had long ceased to deal merely with the virtus of the schoolchild trained to behave well in life. Their goal was to transform the pupil's soul into a speaking mirror of totality. To graduate, the student had to become a Gesamtkunstwerk of world knowledge and cognizance of godly things. In the light of such monumental aims, one would suppose that the author himself had the greatest doubts as to their feasibility. But the undaunted pedagogue of totality insisted on proving by all means that it was indeed time to hope and strive for the greater. Hence the six learning steps of mankind, summarised by the author in chapter 13 of Via Lucis, one of the first outlines of a stage theory of the human race, from Adam and Eve to Gutenberg and Magellan, had to be augmented by a seventh, the step into the global society of light. It is not hard to recognise the euphoric original state of the disenchanted society of knowledge in this vision. For Comenius, this final manoeuvre contains the mission and adventure of the now. Whoever completes it supports the operative light in its current work. They further the breakthrough to total didactics, which promises without false modesty to convey everything to all in a universal fashion. Here sounds the battle cry of pedagogical millenarism, omnes, omnia, omnino, which runs through Comenius's work. 
unwaveringly maintaining the balance between enthusiasm and method for 40 years. With the call to a universal education, Comenius announced that the apocalyptic call was the order of the day in this evening of the world, because not much time was left. It was high time to gather up what had been scattered, and collect all summations in summations of summations. The agenda of the age called for a new book of books, a hyper-Bible that would meet the needs of the Gutenberg era. A book of this kind, a form of newer testament that could test our ability to count to three with the holy scriptures too, could by its nature have to be the definitive or even final book. It would have to contain everything a prudent person should know, heavenly and earthly, natural and artificial things alike is meant to hold the evangelic potential of profane knowledge. What is peculiar here is that world knowledge, whose scope is wide, and salvific knowledge, which demands a restriction to the one essential thing, suddenly find themselves in a state of unimpaired harmony. One can, in fact, view the balanced coexistence of encyclopedism and apocalypticism as the intellectual miracle of the 17th century. Something of this kind would not reappear until the spiritual lightning flash prior to the Russian Revolution, namely in the work of Nikolai Fedorov, 1829-1903, the creative mind of the Russian cosmists, who not only postulated an all-encompassing world museum and a universal cemetery for all the dead of mankind, but also predicted the resurrection of the dead of all eras with the help of the life sciences, which would be founded specifically for this purpose. For him, true universalism consisted in the rejection of death, the final cause of asynchronicity, finitude and disconnection. Something distantly comparable also applied in the apocalyptic thought of the Baroque. Christians were able and expected to be encyclopedists once the conflict between the theomorphism of the soul and the cosmomorphism of the whole human being had ceased to exist. One universe, one book, one psyche. The book-shapedness of the world permits the literate soul to embrace its world-shapedness fully. This is the ultimate reason why the great practices of modernity, practices of modernity, no longer retreated to the desert. In future, it would suffice for them to live by the rule nulla dies sine pagina. Many pages form a chapter, and many chapters create the world. The immersion of scholars in the total book created a polyvalent movement in which withdrawal and exodus coincided. Modern being in the world realised a third way between flight into the world and flight from the world. This movement, which always points forwards and upwards, contains the original gesture of world improvement. Improving the world means comparing the corrupted text to the intact one, and correcting it to restore it to its original state. If there is no access to an original world text, improvers must rely on the dialectical assumption that negation of the wrong will automatically produce the right. Against this background, it is clear why critical theory of the early Frankfurt School, especially after its reduction to a negative dialectics, 
was not only a camouflaged Marxism without a revolutionary perspective. At the same time, it constituted a late daughter product of Baroque, world-improving idealism. Or, more precisely, its regression to a sad science. Need we still add that during its best years, Baroque idealism carried out the transference of the Reformation from matters of faith to matters of knowledge? According to this idealism, we should be saved not only by faith, but also through knowledge. Enlightenment begins as pedagogical gnosis. For those producing art with humans in the 17th century, the mission of emendatio mundi entailed a wealth of further conclusions. They quickly had to produce universal books, the plural is used here merely as a formality, universal schools, a universal college and a universal language. Quote, In this, no corner of the earth, no people, no language, and no class of society will be neglected. End quote. The books of light, schools of light, colleges of light, and languages of light are urgently required in every corner of the universe. The unforced force of self-evidence will win out everywhere, in accordance with the Comenian motto, Omnia sponte fluant, Absit violentia rebus. The primal light and the technical light campaign for the same cause. Books are the lamps of world illumination, schools the lamp bearers, scholars the lamp lighters, and languages the fuel for the flame of universal illumination. Words and things are still so close together here that one can easily cross over from one side to the other. The world is the orderly tableau of essences, and as such it is easily understandable as a whole. That is why the encyclopedias of the early modern age were still a form of atlas, reproducing all the continents and countries of being topically in clear maps. God and humans share the same conception of the world. The lexica of the late 18th century, on the other hand, abandoned the aim of metaphysical overview mirroring the disintegration of the whole in unrelated or weakly connected keywords. Hence the newer reference works, since Zaydler's Universal Lexicon and the French Encyclopédie have opted to string articles together alphabetically. One should not underestimate the formative effect of alphabetically ordered lexica of the 18th century. For later ones, they provided exercises in incoherentism. Their mere structure reinforced the implicit conviction of the moderns that the world was an aggregate of isolated details. To this day, no form of holism has been able to overcome this influence, be it the ecological or the philosophical variety. Comenius's manifesto of the pedagogical international uncovered substantial premises for world-improving action. For those who choose the way of light, haste is as necessary as the conviction that they can pass on universal knowledge. A hundred years later, one of the editors of the Encyclopedia... <laughs> Why can't I say this word? Encyclopedia took up the impulse provided by Comenius. Diderot's vigorous call, Hatton-nous de rendre la philosophie populaire, 
again apologies, can therefore also be reversed. To make philosophy popular and effective requires an acceleration. Only by its haste can one recognise that progress is apocalypticism under a bourgeois guise. For the philosophical apocalypticist, the way to the light is the way of light itself. It is the absolute in history. It has accepted performing the work of world pervasion since the beginning of all creation, and in our time the enterprise has entered its final phase. If there has ever been a version of the project of modernity in plain terms, it can be found in the work of Comenius. The postulate of omniscience recalls a time from which we have long since been alienated, when knowledge was viewed as something almost exclusively qualitative and grounded in the nature of things. It viewed itself as essential knowledge and claimed to offer penetrating insight into the structure of the rounded cosmos of essences. It referred to an effectively complete but phenomenally disordered world in need of repair and thus seemingly incomplete, but nonetheless reparable. At that time, the world improvers were any who wanted to give the world back its original perfection, whereas today one must assume that every repair causes new imbalances, new imperfections. For the pan-sophists of the 16th and 17th centuries, there was nothing presumptuous in the call for omniscience. I merely drew the inescapable conclusions from the basic assumptions of classical metaphysics, which rested on an ontology of the perfect and comprehensible world. This could at most be augmented by a therapeutics that enabled humans to heal into the whole. These assumptions echo in the admonition of Comenian pedagogy to build the new school on the summation of all summations, so that future tuition could be based on a universal book. Even omniscience can be given a child-friendly form. The pan-pedagogical intention is unmistakably based on other premises than the ancient way of practicing towards omniscience. For the sophists, it did not come from an overall insight into the circle of knowledge joining the world, but rather the decree that the artist in the eternal rhetorical training camp should be able to speak spontaneously and triumphantly on any given subject. Eccentric positionality. The human automaton as a provocation of anthropology. The modernity of Comenius's school projects is clear not so much from its limitless optimism, which seems decidedly antiquated today. It comes from the radically technical definition of school as an integral learning machine. It is not without reason that Comenius emphasised that the reformed school this workshop, Ophikina, of humaneness, must function in the manner of an automaton. To understand this term, one must take into account that the 17th century began to honour God himself as the first builder of automata. The later equation of automatism and soullessness, undoubtedly the greatest success of anti-modern semantics after 1750, was still a remote notion for the engineers of the time. For his own part, Comenius aimed to construct a perpetuum mobile, 
as his notes reveal. He was determined to make such an object public, assuming he succeeded in producing it, as a new proof of God's existence via technology. He therefore prayed to heaven that it might grant him, not least in his own interests, the completion of the perfect machine. Here the adventure of cognitive modernization hinges on the identification of nature as the epitome of the God-built automaton. It formed the basis of the prediction that man, viewed by Comenius as the co-operator Dei, could soon embark in earnest on the reconstruction of natural machines. Barely a century later, the anthropomorphic automata from the workshops of Baron von Kempelen, who had been appearing with his purportedly mechanical chess Turk since 1769, Pierre Jacquet Droz, who presented his immortal androids, the writer, the draftsman and the musician in 1774, and Friedrich Kaufmann, who displayed his automatic trumpeter to the public were on everyone's lips. From that point on, romantic literature, including opera, raved about the possibility of confusing humans with statues, dolls or machines, with nothing to suggest that this motif could ever be abandoned again in technological civilization. As early as the 17th century then, or the 18th at the latest, Anthropotechnics opened up a second front by projecting the impulse of artificial human moulding into android machines. For Comenius, there was no doubt. School had to become a machine. Its task was to send perfect reproductions of humans into the world, as genuine, well-formed humans. Anyone curious as to the things of which pedagogy once dared to dream can obtain the necessary information here. Here we also witness the reactivation of a disposition that was already familiar to the Stoic teachers. When they gave the students who chose the philosophical way the task of working on their inner statue, this contained the suggestion that the empirical human should step aside for the ideal figure. The popularity of anthropology from the 18th century on was triggered not least by the doubling of humans as androids and their human observers. If one takes this into account, it becomes clear why Plessner's eccentric positionality, correctly understood, is not merely a trivial self-transposition to the place and view of others, or the familiar human phenomenon of stepping out of oneself in front of the mirror. It not only reflects the increasing demands of multi-situative societies on the art of role-playing, in addition, it is irreducible to the disadvantage of being seen, as illuminated by Blumenberg let alone to an attempt to turn the disadvantage of visibility into an advantage. As much as this observation might offer a plausible explanation for the essential theatricality of cultures. Theatre is the flight from visibility in, as the flight into visibility. Theatre is the flight from visibility as the flight into visibility. The awareness of eccentricity among the moderns primarily rationalises the shock of the ability to produce human automata. At the same time, it mirrors the amusement that can be derived from playing with mechanical doppelgangers. The statue is alive. It may harbour unpredictable intentions. It is moving towards humans. The modern theory of the human being is unimaginable without these suggestions. 
if the moderns still erected statues, it was no longer simply to set up moral and cultural models. They also did so to learn new things from within the statues. Were not the anatomical maps of Vesalios, in fact, macabre statues that revealed what the, quote, factory of the human body, end quote, looks like from the inside? Though the viewer of the Vesalian plates would be reminded less of a workshop than of a ballroom acting as a venue for a modernised dance macabre, performed by men composed of blood vessels and organs and all possible cuts and projections. Was not the message of the human skeletons appearing in the scientific collections of the nobility, and later also as demonstration objects in publicly funded schools, primarily an anthropological one, as they were presenting the basic framework of the android? And did not the plastinates of the Boyce imitator Gunther von Hagens, which have caused a worldwide furor since 1996 under the name Body Worlds, merely clarifying the idea of the modern statue, the statue that exposes the inner android? The plausibility of the anthropological mode of reflection from the 18th century onwards stemmed from the fact that every individual was now confronted with the stimulus of understanding themselves as a composite of android and real human. Thus, the venerable body-soul distinction presented itself in a new state of matter. The heyday of body discourses in Europe for the last 200 years makes this constellation clear to this day. Following the publication of La Maitrier's L'Homme Machine in 1748, the recipients of the physiological enlightenment could see what happens when automata learn to speak and machines become nervous. It is not without reason that somnambulism, alongside the fear of being buried alive, was the central psychopathological symptom of the 19th century. The sleepwalker represents the the sleepwalker presents the inner android acting independently after the subtraction of the ego's consciousness, while live burial evokes the complementary phenomenon, the pure ego as it appears to itself after the interment of its body. The psychoanalysis of the early 20th century, a contemporary mask of practicing life in a world where even mourning is described as a form of work, still attempted to map the interaction between the two factors onto the internal relationship between the ego and the id. The constant back and forth between the poles of the android id and the human ego gave rise to the soul drama of the mid-modern age, which was simultaneously a technical drama. Its topic is best summarised in a theory of convergence, where the android moves towards its animation, while increasing parts of real human existence are demystified as higher forms of mechanics. The uncanny, which Freud knew something about, and the disappointing, on which he chose to remain silent, move towards each other. The ensoulment of the machine is strictly proportional to the desoulment of humans. As explained in the first and so far only philosophically elaborated theory of technology, that of Gotthard Gunther, the draining away of transcendently misunderstood subjectivity into the outer world was the key metaphysical event of the modern age.
The most commonplace observations already show that humans come under pressure on two fronts at once. Not only have humans constituted a tiny minority compared to images for some time, for every Western person in the 20th century, there are countless visual documents and reproductions. They are also becoming a minority in relation to anthropomimetic cognition mimetic machines, namely computers. The interdisciplinary continent. It was one of the terminological-historical mishaps of the modern age that it reserved the word scholasticism for the higher education of the Middle Ages and its philosophical-theological treatises. By now it is unmistakably clear how far modernity itself gave rise to the scholastic world form determined by didactic disciplinary impulses, far beyond what medieval school culture, which was de facto only a marginal element in its time, could hope to achieve. Modernity is hyperscholasticism. It is based on the universal invasiveness of the school, as well as the reciprocal transfer of disciplines between the subsystems of society. We have already hinted at the transfer of monastic discipline to school life. Its consequences were a transformation of humans into pupils, one that continued through all temporally conditioned forms of pedagogy including the school-hating movements of the 20th century. A sufficiently complex civilization history of the modern age would, furthermore, have to show how all systems of social action interlock in a constant play of discipline transfer. Thus, it is not only the monastic modus vivendi that is translated into a scholastic one, for military discipline also retroactively affects religious discipline the most famous example being the amalgam of monastic grooming and sublimated combat training in the companies of the Societas Jesu. All three areas of disciplines, the monastic, the scholastic, and the military, act not only as matrices for the ordering projects of the police and the professional shaping of the civil service, but also radiate into the sphere of craftsmen studios, factories, and trading companies. Those who had known the strict alliance of discipline and compulsion in these areas could experience the harmonious coexistence of discipline and freedom in the arts. In this sense, Europe was the interdisciplinary continent, from the virtuosity boon in the 15th and 16th centuries onward, and has remained it to this day. As such, it forms a network of total schooling. The constant stimulation of the skilled by competitors was one of the effects of the network's increasing density. Educators have often overlooked the fact that one's rival is the most important teacher of all. The new media of the Gutenberg era contributed to the expansions of practice zones. Thanks to increasing literacy, all nation-states saw the growth of reading populations who were exposed to insistent media fitness training. They embodied the equation of humans and readers. They were joined in the 20th century by the telephone and radio peoples, who were subsequently sublated into the world people or the internet. Media fitness is the element in which modern populations elaborate both their global and specific fitness. 
why passive media consumption leads almost inevitably to unfitness, in technical terms, how the overstimulating connection described by Comenius between seeing for oneself, autopsia, and doing for oneself, autopragmasia, would have to be explained via an analogous, via an analysis of negative training. Art history as asceticism history. Without the ubiquitous modern fluidum of disciplinary increase, it would have been impossible for the art industry of the Renaissance and subsequent centuries to function. It is time that the frequently told history of the visual and musical arts in the modern age was presented as the history of artistic asceticisms. This would not only show the phenomenon of art in a modern, in a different light, it would also cast a new spotlight on the art of mid-modernity, which can be understood in significant aspects as the production of an increasing suspension of artistic and craft disciplines. If what I have termed the second history of art concerns art with humans, in particular the art of pushing them towards higher achievements, one of its most important chapters deals with the production of artists in the early modern House of Discipline. Suffice it to recall Richard Sennett's remarks on the ethos of the crafts, specifically his excursus on the goldsmiths of the Renaissance. Only in the area of art singing and instrumental music does one find an unbroken and self-evident tradition of practice awareness that has survived all changes of style, taste, compositional technique and performance tradition from the Renaissance to post-modernity. Ironically, it is the great instrumentalists who stand in the limelight almost daily, trained in deep impudence before the audience, who wallow in applause and thus feed the welcome illusion of that high artistic freedom which one likes to imagine first at the mention of repressive discipline. Because of their overwhelming practice workload, these virtuosos seem more open to Foucauldian analogies than almost any other disciplined group. Many of them see the parallels when one compares their practice rooms to prison cells, and the torment of etudes to solitary confinement at the instrument. One cannot, however, deny the relatively voluntary nature of their suffering through discipline. Though it may, at first glance, seem plausible to present the history of newer instrumental music as a classical case of disciplinary power, it actually forms a chapter in the Metamorphosis of Passions. If one looks from Czerny's notorious didactic piano works, such as The School of Velocity, op. 299, 40 Daily Exercises, op. 337, or Nouveau Grados ad Parnassum, op. H22, to the didactic devotional texts of the 15th and 16th centuries, such as Thomas Akempis's De Imitatio Christi, written anonymously around 1418, or the Exercitationes Spiritualis by Ignatius of Loyola, published in Spanish in 1533, in Latin in 1541. They give an idea of the wide-ranging changes in the willingness among modern humans to accept passion in the course of barely more than four centuries. They extend from the 
instrumentless passion of the spiritually co-crucified, co-dead and co-resurrected who follow mystical instructions, to the instrumental virtuoso culture of the early 19th century that embodies the romantic compromises between the artist's bravura and the de-selfing in the face of the instrument's demands, to say nothing of the interpretive requirements of the works themselves. Whoever scans this stretch will immediately realise why the art history of the modern age cannot be understood solely as a history of works. In addition, it always constitutes the history of passion exercises and their transformation into artistic passions. What I call the second history of art, then, is primarily responsible for the training procedures of artists and their disciplines. It thus also deals with the process of de-disciplining in more recent art history. With this dual focus, it shifts from the focus, it shifts the focus from the work to the artist by defining the production of art producers as an independent dimension of art history, which incidentally is the opposite of conventional biographism. This refocused art history thus becomes a branch of the general history of practice and training. Firstly, it gives technically precise answers to the question of high arts creation, insofar as this is possible through the analysis of practice forms. Secondly, it can offer new ways to interpret the paradoxes of mass culture, for example the phenomenon that some international stars in the pop music scene still cannot sing after decades on the stage, which is only mildly surprising if one knows that a mere fraction of their practice time is invested in singing whereas they automatically assume that less than three hours of working out at the gym are insufficient for their stage show. If one transposes the history of art into the framework of a history of asceticisms, one gains not least a new perspective on the complex of phenomena which Hans Belting presents as a history of the image before the era of art in his study Likeness and Presence. This knowledgeable synopsis of iconic painting from late antiquity to the Renaissance is not so much concerned with venturing into a zone before art, this would mean delegitimizing the secular artist and subordinating him to the artist priest. In his book on icons, Belting rather discovers the possibility of rethinking art history as the medium for a history of art-bearing asceticisms. The author stops halfway, admittedly, subsuming art history a contre-soir, under a general image history. For him, one of the few resolute art essentialists today, this was essentially only a provisional solution, in which the sense of different qualities had not yet been sufficiently explored. In reality, it is not the liquidation of art history in favour of a general image history that is the order of the day. Otherwise, the mass photographing of everything and everyone would be the culmination of the history of image productions. What needs to be made explicit is rather the historical alliance of art and asceticism, which has thus far only been discussed indirectly. If one accepts this th thematization, iconic painting can, often, can offer the most plausible starting point for a grand narrative of the procession of image-creating energies through the ages. Not because one considers it a form of artless pictoriality, 
but because the icon embodies the exemplary work of asceticism. Here art is applied asceticism, and high asceticism, sometimes high art. The sacred image is not only an object of selfless prayer and meditation. The very act of painting from which it ensues is one of the most concentrated forms of prayer, meditation, and de-selfing. The reason why generations of icon painters have devoted themselves to a single motif for their entire lives is that, in the spirit of Hellenistic Eastern Christianity, they were obliged to keep submitting anew to the transcendent image that would then materialise through their work. This monothematicism shows that the image is only permissible in the service of salvation. Hence, there is no question of a free choice of motif. Through its restriction to a few archetypes, spiritual painting is capable of furthering flight from the world or ethical secession. Icon painters could never entertain the belief that they had created the perfect image. It was a sign of satanic temptation to think that the divine archetype had chosen them in order to take on a worldly manifestation through their work. Only the transcendent archetype could exhibit the fullness of perfection, not its inner worldly projection let alone the painter, a subordinate iconopoieti, however, dissolved his ego. Icon painting thus embodies art at its ascetic maximum, and the minimum connection to the world. Once this point has been fixed, post-iconic European art history can be presented as a multi-stage process entailing a shifting, expansion, loosening and dissolution of art-enabling asceticisms. In the disappearance of the monopoly held by religious themes, it was the visual art of the Renaissance that literally opened new windows. The liberation of polythematicism was the true meaning of the art of perspective. Seeing perspectively, after all, means affording the world the third dimension, depth, and with it the dignity of contemplatability. Well, now the icon was everywhere. Any image could be a sacred one, and every window opened on a true manifestation. Salvation no longer meant liberation from the temptations of the world, but rather liberation to experience the wealth of earthly wonders. The world became everything worthy of being shown. The encounter between the most elaborated discipline and the most comprehensive attention to the world created the conditions for extreme culminations of artistic success. The possibility of such heights is not limited to the classical centuries, of course, being essentially present in all later periods too, including the present. As is well known, however, this creates a less favourable environment for new peak productions, as the all-infiltrating phenomenon of mass culture thanks to its victorious mixture of simplification, disrespect and intolerance, is averse to any normative notion of height, let alone heights to which it is supposed to compare. It is necessary to trace the problematic role of 20th century visual art in the dissolution of standards, even, and especially in its advanced civilised wing. One of its passions, after all, was the propagation of an art without disciplinary premises. The topic, Duchamp and the Consequences, will continue to occupy art critics for a long time, and it is by no means certain whether the reputation held by the church father of art after art will survive such examination intact.
on military drill. A significant side branch of newer art with humans, one that only receives scant interest and even scanter sympathy among contemporary audiences, is evident in the military world of the early modern age. We know that soldierly practice extends back to the early periods of Mesopotamian and Mediterranean state forms. The famous Greek phalanx and the Roman legions were already considered marvels of combat training and the overcoming of psychological probability, that is, the human inclination to flee in the face of mortal danger, in their own time. Nor was Cicero's connection of the Roman word for the army, exocytos, to its main function of daily weapons practice, exocitatio, ever completely forgotten in Europe. In addition, ancient accounts describe how in battle group fitness, demonstrated in impressive formations and coherent collective movements, far outweighed military, far outweighed individual fitness in man-to-man combat. Although the medieval military system could not ignore this information, knighthood established on an entirely different notion of battle and victory, and it was only in the early modern age that a new type of warfare on the very basis of resolute formation training emerged once more. Without this, it would be impossible to understand the controlled evolution of troops, both on the battlefield and on the drill ground between the 17th century and the innovations of Napoleonic mobile warfare. In the common descriptions of early modern reconnections to Greek and Roman cultural patterns on the fields of architecture, visual art and literature, it has been overlooked that this was also contemporaneous, displaced by a few generations, with a military return of antiquity. It is associated in particular with the works of the army commander Maurice of Nassau, with contributions from William of Orange and his brother John VI of Nassau-Dillenburg, which, next to contemporary military theoretical impulses, was based most of all on the renewed interest in ancient military writers. Thanks to his sound knowledge of classical languages, Morris was able to study the original texts of authors, such as Xenophon, Polybius, and Onassander, as well as Caesar, Livy, and Suetonius. But most of all, the tactical writings of Elianos, and the Byzantine emperor, Leo VI. From these works, he took precise instructions for the development of modern training rules. In the military reform he carried out for the Dutch troops in the anti-Spanish War of Liberation after 1589, he drew particularly on the instructions, already tested by the Greeks, to set up soldiers in rank and file, a division whose effects could still be observed on the barrack squares of the 20th and 21st centuries. In a sort of involuntary Platonism, Greek and Roman warriors alike, he adopted, had adopted the central principle of the Republic, namely that the quote-unquote state is nothing but a great man, makranthropos, unabashedly equating the state, polis, with a disciplined military troop. Such ideas suited the intuitions of Renaissance strategists, because they permitted the projection of geometric figures and homogeneous movements, evolutions onto larger masses of political organisms. Consistently with this, Morris took the descriptions, some of them extremely precise, of the elementary movements of army groups from the ancient tactical manuals, including such figures as about turns, wheeling, countermarches, and others, 
Here the soldier is shaped into the lateralized human being, who must not confuse left and right under any circumstances. Furthermore, the ancients had already discovered the significance of a simple and effective language in which commands could be conveyed unambiguously to the troops. Under this influence, all armies of the burgeoning European nation-states followed the Orange-Nassau model and developed their own native military codes, consisting of short one-word commands that would be internalised on the barrack squares and subsequently followed on the battlefield. The sections of the new rulebooks devoted to the use of arms in particular, the still unwieldy firearms, a subject on which the pioneers of the Orange Reform could not learn much from the ancients, even contained first descriptions of complex movement sequences, whose ergonomic precision could only return in the positivistic investigations of early sport science in the 19th century, as well as the instructions for production line workers in the era of Taylorism. These studies were not surpassed until the last third of the 20th century, when quantified sport physiology and training science made motion studies with imaging procedures, diagrams showing the metabolic rates of top athletes, and individualized training instructions for sporting disciplines of all kinds and levels of order of the day. Individualized training instructions for sporting disciplines of all kinds and levels, the order of the day. Human fitters in general. <clears throat> we have seen how the privilege of conveying the absolute imperative gradually left the hands of religious speakers and passed to a number of secular agencies at the start of the modern age. Notable examples of these were the early modern prince as a patron of human production, the Baroque educator as an expert on the pan-sophic moulding of humans, and the Renaissance commander as the classically schooled virtuoso of massed human movements massed human arrangements in the war of formations. In time, these were joined by throngs of advisors and prompters who no longer addressed their fellow humans as messengers of the metanoetic imperative, but as bringers of practical innovations that concerned technical advantages more than moral improvements. I call these the human fitters of the modern age. They were highly significant for the moulding of the human material of their time, for Unlike some philosophers, they never succumbed to the ideology of the unequipped, absolute human being. The new fitters chose the pragmatic way to access humans. They saw them primarily as clients, that is to say as participants in the world of goods and things who were surrounded by obtainable objects, were stimulated by objects, and practiced with objects. They never spoke of the single necessity, as long as they could promote useful innovations. They suggested to their contemporaries that they should change their life through participation in current artificialities and raise their existential tonicity, and not least their competing power, through new means of information, comfort and distinction. This new market undermines the archaic either-or of ethical difference. Now fundamentalists could transform themselves into customers. Believers could become readers and escapists could turn into manifest media users. Whoever wanted to change their life found themselves amidst an ever-widening horizon of life-augmenting and life-increasing accessories. 
these are the strongest attractors in the modern deluge of commodities, which is often unjustly described only in terms of consumerism. Their acquisition is tied to a share in elevated fitness chances and expanded gratifications. This extends from the first editions of humanist authors to flat rates for the networked world, from spices harvested in the Moluccan islands to Parker-graded Grand Cru du Medoc from the crude prosthetic hands of Goetz von Berlichingen's day to the high-tech implants of the present from the coaches of Emperor Maximilian's time to the luxury jeeps for the mobility elite of the last petroleum years. The human fitters are no more sellers or market criers peddling accessories for an up-to-date life. If one takes their function as seriously as is absolutely necessary in the face of their significance for the material equipping of modern existence, one observes that what they offer is frequently no less than world improvement in discrete amounts, such as the late medieval invention of eyeglasses, without which reading and living in the Gutenberg era would have been inconceivable. Even Petrarch, it is written, already made use of such a reading aid from the age of 60. Modern paper also falls into the category of world improvements from the production line. This is the source of the pandemonium of commodities that are brought to the modern audience via printers, publishers, newspaper makers, cartographers, writers, scholars and journalists. Members of the paper-based professions here act as discrete drill instructors for the modern humans. They change the life of every individual without reaching for their whole existence. The anthropotechnic efforts of these services and products the competence-elevating dynamic, and the expansion of the operational horizon are generally only granted full approval in the early days. At the beginning of an innovation, it is the difference between users and non-users that is most apparent, while in the phase of market saturation, its entropic and abusive effects attract attention. That is why Comenius and Karl Klaus could not hold the same opinion about the meetings of the black about the blessings of the black art. As long as no more than a small minority are capable of reading and writing, universal alphabetization seems like a messianic project. Only once everyone has the ability does one notice the catastrophe that almost no one can do it properly. This background enables us to understand a fact that is symptomatic of the current phase of saturation. There are countless people who want to withdraw from the omnipresence of advertising, who even avoid it like the plague. Here too, it is helpful to distinguish between the states before and after. From the perspective of the burgeoning modern world of products, advertising could be justified by the argument that spreading the word about the existence of new means of life improvement was indispensable as the populations of industrial and trading nations would otherwise have been cheated of major knowledge about discrete improvements to the world. As the ambassador of new bringers of advantage, early advertising was the general training medium for contemporary performance collectives, thoughtlessly denounced in culture-conservative milieus as quote-unquote consumer societies. The aversion to advertising that pervades the saturated infospheres of the present, however, is based on the correct intuition that, in most of its manifestations, 
it has long since become a form of downward training. It no longer passes on what people should know in order to access advantageous innovations. It creates illusions of purchasable self-elevations that de facto usually lead to weakenings. Finally, we should speak of modern bankers who, because of their role as lenders for people who seek to improve their situation, and as business actors, often actually do so, prove the most effective motivators for an intensifying change. Their work shows how a substantial part of the improvement imperatives under which the moderns live stem from the arcanum magnum of the modern property economy. If one formulates it explicitly, one stumbles on the categorical imperative of debt service. Economise in such a way that, through an efficient use of resources, you can always be sure of being able to repay credit on time. The credit stress that forces growing populations of debtors into shape is a source of willingness to innovate that no theory of creativity has yet adequately acknowledged. As soon as one understands that modern disciplinings are based neither on the relationship of master and slave, nor on the opposition of capital and labour, but rather on the symbiotic antagonism of creditors and debtors, the entire history of money-driven quote-unquote societies must be rewritten from scratch. <laughs>